we served a multi-course uh, meal of elegant food on a moving subway as it traveled from Manhattan uh, into Brooklyn. Uh, we created a life-size Monopoly board for a charitable gala in Panama. Uh, we taught drones how to be a photo booth, and then we taught that photo booth how to also shake and stir cocktails, in case you wanted to have a, a drone make you a cocktail. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a Driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? My name is Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths people take in life. If you'd like to support episodes like this being made, please check out the show's Patreon page at patreon.com slash half hour intern. In today's episode, I speak with Michael Sorino, who is the founder and owner of A Razor, A Shiny Knife, which for a lack of a better term is a creative marketing agency, but there is really no good way to entirely describe the company. There's no words that I can put together that will really do justice to these sorts of incredibly creative and amazingly difficult things to put together that Michael puts together for companies and nonprofits and governments and all sorts of things to uh, just drum up attention for them and create really cool experiences around their brand or their cause. So uh, as you saw when you clicked on this, I did not try to make an attempt to uh, to name what it is that he does. I just left the name of the episode, A Razor, A Shiny Knife, uh, just to give you guys a couple of, of quick uh, stabs at some of the things that he has done. He has done a lunch on the L train event where he served a multi-course meal for people on the subway, in, like a, a fine dining multi-course meal um, on the subway in uh, New York City. He's done an event where he made cocktails with drones. He's done an event where he served a 100-course meal for people. He uh, did a gala where he made a life-size Monopoly board where um, people had to, you know, like live out life on this Monopoly board. He, uh, for the 125th anniversary of pizza, ordered pizza from every single pizza establishment in all of Manhattan, uh, which was thousands. Like just incredible the the sorts of things that he's done. Um, again, I guess in the name of marketing and creativity. But as Michael will describe, he doesn't look at his role as being cr- uh, chiefly creative. He looks at his role as being chiefly uh, logistics and and being somebody that can really tackle these these difficult things to do and figure out how the heck can we actually make this happen. Obviously, it goes without saying that he's also an incredibly creative person, but um, as you'll hear him talk about these things, uh, they are in- incredibly difficult to make happen. So it, may, it makes sense why he he sees himself as a logistic person that needs to uh, to think of ways to make all these things come to life. So without further ado, here is a razor, a shiny knife. Michael, thanks so much for joining me on the show. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, Thanks for having yeah. me. Yeah, for sure. So before we get into it, I think the best way to start would be for you to give everyone as brief of a description as you can about what a razor, a shiny knife is, and what you do, and stuff like that. Which I, it's so unique that it's kind of hard to keep it brief. But we'll delve into it so much more throughout the interview. But if, that way, people can just sort of have a framework to think about it as we go through things. 
So uh, the space that we would normally uh, live in is a creative agency. Um, but uh, since over the last couple of years, we've been doing a lot of productions from our own creative pool. We're trying to reimagine that as an entertainment company. Uh, we create high impact experiences and then turn those experiences into uh, multimedia stories. Uh, we do a lot of uh, innovation, uh, technology development, and the deployment of cutting edge technologies in a production or in an interactive theatrical space. Um, and a lot of our projects kind of uh, have a, a foundation of uh, hospitality, whether it be food and drink or travel or um, access to unique uh, moments. Um, we kind of use that as the foundation for those projects to, to stand on. So that sounds like a whole lot of stuff. So why don't you also give people maybe a few examples of things that you've done in the past um, so they could you know, think of it that way? Yeah, so uh, I like to say that my art is logistics management um, and that my canvases are spreadsheets and my paintbrushes are best practices. And that's a really dry way of saying, um, you know, elegance is in details and with details come complexity. And my goal is to create interactive experiences that have a lot of details um, and that have a lot of complexity um, that usually can be done uh, either with cutting edge technology or it can be done through uh, kind of food service. Some of the projects uh, that we've done uh, over the last couple of years, we served a multi-course uh, meal of elegant food on a moving subway as it traveled from Manhattan uh, into Brooklyn. Uh, we created a life-size Monopoly board for a charitable gala in Panama. Uh, we taught drones how to be a photo booth, and then we taught that photo booth how to also shake and stir cocktails in case you wanted to have a, a drone make you a cocktail. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, those are some of the, the sillier things or the more fun things. Uh, but at the same time, we're also doing, you know, thought leadership conferences, uh, making sure that the, the guest experience is really elegant and um, thoughtful. The gifting is really elegant and thoughtful. The stage design is, um, you know, condu conducive of the conversation that's being had and that the presentations that are being given have been customized into that space and really are uh, creating a, a secondary value more than just being on a stage. Right, um, right. You know, it's like, I, you know, then we can get into more and more specifics of the general bits, but uh, I love this, uh, this space of, um, you know, theater meets multimedia. Yeah, for sure. So it's like if a company hires you to do uh, like a nice dinner evening for them it's not just going to be dinner it's going to be uh ideally like something these people will never forget if people are gonna have uh drinks poured by you they're poured by the drones like in that one example it's like these things could be normal things that quote unquote normal things that you're being hired for hey we, we want you to do a drink event for us we want you to do a speaking engagement for us we want you to help us do a dinner for these people but your company and your job is to make these things almost like a cross between performance art, but then also serving their same basic function of like, you will get an actual drink. Like you will eat food tonight. Yep. I mean, that, that's the foundation, right? We think of, um, you know, we think of the way that people interact with, uh, with each other, right. And, and the way that, uh, brands or individuals or, um, you know, governments communicate, right. And, in, in my philosophy that, you know, there, there's two general ways that, that they communicate, uh, is uh, either through marketing or through entertainment. And marketing is basically saying, like, if you give me some of your time, I will eventually give you value. Where entertainment gives you value immediately and then might ask for you to add some resources to the game, either more time, um, you know, energy, money on the backside, because the entertainment was valuable to you um, after you consumed it. And I think a lot of what I do tries to focus on 
that, that, that separation and focus more on the entertaining side first, coming up with really interesting projects that live in, in this world and that would have a really great synergy with a brand or a charity or a government or an individual, uh, individual's needs, um, as opposed to really being uh, 100% responsive so that you can make sure that you're not um, just talking about that entity um, and you're actually list- you're trying to speak to the people that entity wants to connect with. For sure. It makes me think of a company like Red Bull or something that um, puts on things like the Flugtag and like all, you know, they they put out tons of money to sponsor extreme athletes and things like that, because it's like we we want people to have fun experiences with Red Bull and think of Red Bull with these experiences. Like, I'm not just going to like sell to you. You can like come to this cool event and then hopefully maybe in the future you'll remember that, you know, and like you'll want to just buy Rebel in the future because you associate us as being a fun, cool company and you align with that. Is that like yeah, kind of what you're helping companies do, but not in such like extreme way, I guess? So I, I would say that there's generally two types of companies. Um, there is your, your, your general Disney and your Red Bull. Right? Disney is a company that is inherently entertaining and um, can actually obtain value from you know the three ways that we typically communicate with people. You know, we we normally tell stories, uh, we make uh, theatrical experiences, and then we make artifacts, right? And you know, stories are infinitely scalable. Uh, they're infinitely portable. Um, they're usually media. Uh, if we're in the Disney landscape, we're talking about uh, you know the Mickey Mouse Club or Cinderella or Star Wars. Um, you know, you and I can both watch Star Wars. Uh, and it's the exact same experience. We could watch it five years ago, 15 years ago. We can watch it in 30 years and the media doesn't change. Right. Um, but the theater side that that's, um, it's a little bit more personalized. Um, it is temporary. It's ephemeral. And, uh, because of these things, because it's your experience, right? It has more impact because it's also something that each individual has to have. And every time they have it, it's unique. It's not, a, it's not as scalable. So they live in kind of like a duality of, of, of general entertainment. And then the third piece is the artifact. And um, for me, this is the, you know, again, if we're sticking in this Disney model, it's the, um, the figurines for the Star Wars characters or the, the Mickey Mouse ears, or it's the coloring book, or it's the, the, the Finding Nemo doll, doll or whatever is on brand. Um, it is the, the thing that you take out as a consumer um, that allows you to reaccess that entertaining universe at your convenience, right? Without active in, in interaction with, with the, the producer. Um, and, you know, Disney makes money on all three of those things. All three of those things serve its marketing purposes as they get the other projects excited. Um, they serve as R&D beds. You can have a movie become an amusement park ride, become an action figure, or you can have an action figure become a TV show, become an amusement park ride, or you can have an amusement park ride, become a movie. You get the gist, right? It's like it's, it's a self-fulfilling cycle. Right. Where Red Bull makes a... Uh, a disposable artifact. You know, they make an energy drink, which is very similar to other energy drinks. So they recognize that that artifact needs to live in this rich and entertaining universe. And they do all that theatrical design or theatrical investment through sports or creating sports or investing in technologies that support sports. Um, they were, you know, so good at storytelling as well um, with that idea of theatrical sports. You know, uh, the Art of Flight was a, a beautiful movie that came out at the beginning of, you know, high def IMAX you know, cinematography and it, you know, it was basically an, you know, 70 minute long Red Bull commercial, but it was, uh, gorgeous to look at. And it was, you know, it, it was, and should have been in, in movie festivals. And I think that's a really unique and interesting way to, uh, to approach the matrix of trying to capture people's attention and 
convince them that your your message or your product is is worth their time and resources. Yeah, for sure. So w- with those three examples that you're talking about with um, the artifact, well, sorry, the artifact, what were the two other things? So it's story, uh, theater, and artifact. Story, theater, and, and artifact. So you're saying that basically what most companies would do if let's say they're just advertising to you and they want you to buy something, that would just be creating an artifact like the thing that they want you to buy and then having like a small a small weak story basically on the side like but i'm you know i'm telling you this exact story and you're going to receive it as such and then buy this thing and you're trying to help people have either a more rich story and most likely it sounds like usually have a theater piece to their product as well that people will then attach to that artifact yeah so like like the idea would be as if we're trying to sell a, a convertible automobile um, the idea of owning a convertible, you know, part of the excitement of it is that you have the sun and the wind and all that kind of stuff. So if your artifact is a car and you want this artifact to live in an entertaining universe, which is that driving around with the top down is awesome. Um, you have to show people how awesome this is before they have that experience. You have to show how radically your artifact gives this, you know, visceral uh, potential experience for you. So the experience is driving down the highway with the wind in your hair and this awesome car listening to the motor or, you know, listening to the absence of sound because it's electric and, you know, it's all that space. Um, where are you driving? Are you headed to the beach? Are you headed to the mountains? Is it fall and you have the heat on? Is it the summer and you have the air conditioning on? Is the tops down? You know, like all of that stuff starts building up in your mind is like, oh, if I buy this $30,000 vehicle, I'll get to have that theatrical experience all the time you know do we tell that story through an advertisement do we tell it through a piece of branded content do we uh, have that brand invest in automobile uh, storytelling from an editorial point of view whether it be a a publication or a youtube celebrity or an influencer you know how, how do they then sponsor content that is ancillary to their product that is actually just supposed to be entertaining first and foremost um but also uh, gets people excited about what their artifact could provide. Yeah, for sure, man, for sure. All right, so I think everyone probably now has a pretty good idea about sort of what you do. Before we go any further and dig into it more, I would love to go back a ways and talk about your background and how everything evolved for a razor shiny knife. Because we were speaking yesterday, and I was I was really surprised by the way that this all evolved. So why don't you tell everyone a little bit about what you did before this um, and if you had any sort of background in this and then how a razor, a shiny knife sort of evolved naturally over time. So, um, I, I, I enjoy socializing around creation instead of consumption. And it's a, it's a very simple kind of thing. I, I just like making stuff and it might sound silly, you know, like I'll help you put your Ikea furniture together. Um, at the same time as I'll, I'll sit down and talk to you about starting a company or, you know, a new project or whatever it is, because I like the idea of, um, ideas becoming, uh, things that you can touch or feel or experience. And, um, sometime in like 2004, um, I really started to enjoy cooking and I started inviting people to my home to cook together. Uh, every Sunday. And the idea was very simple. We just wanted to make a menu and practice different techniques and learn how to cook better while constantly just elevating what we were doing in a very simple home kitchen. And what quickly became clear was that cooking was just a very great metaphor for any other type of project. And working together on projects, you got to see who worked well together, who collaborated well, who listened, who taught well, who uh, made mistakes, uh, you know, very effectively and who made mistakes that were very expensive and costly, uh, how people communicated about those things. 
And uh, it got to be this point where, you know, maybe two or three years into it, where we all started filtering out the people we didn't like to cook with. And the ones that were left were, <laughs> you know, that we were able to make other stuff. You know, we were able to say like, oh, cooking's now kind of easy. You know, Andrew, what do you do? I'm, so I'm in a really computer I'm science guy. I'm trying to figure out this language modeling system. Be like, cool, how can we integrate that in something that we do? You know, like, uh, you know, you're, you're an architect. How, how do I get our sets to be more interesting? You know, you, you do theater. How do we have this be a theatrical conversation in a more traditional sense? You know, how do we position characters in the room? Um, and the, the meals became kind of more complex as we started tapping into the, the people who are passionate about food also happen to be passionate about other things and also happen to be experts about maybe other things than that. So we started using food as that foundation and, and hospitality as that foundation to kind of thread together everybody else's expertise and passions into larger and larger projects. And then this is how, it, it, about what point in time did the lunch on the L train thing happen? So that was about uh, 2011. And where things really changed was in 2008, uh, we had been doing these elaborate meals out of my home um, and uh, various like locations around the city. And there was an article written about us in the New York Times where they were just talking about the, the underground dining scene and, and what it meant. And between 2008 and 2011, I spent a lot of energy focusing on the theatrical experience um, because that's what I thought I was, uh, I was you know, kind of working on. That that's, was my value proposition. I'm, I'm creating this unique theater, right? And what I, what I realized was that theater is very expensive. Um, food is very expensive. You know, hospitality is very expensive. Food and hospitality together is outrageously expensive. And the creativity that I was looking to express needed to have a larger scale to it to allow for the budgets to increase and allow for us to actually be able to make the things that we were thinking about. And the L train was the first time where we produced a piece of theater and a piece of multimedia uh, in parallel so that the experience was unique and um, very uh, special, um, but wasn't scalable, right? It was designed in that meal specifically, 12 people um, were going to be able to have lunch, right? Nine people were invited, three people were solicited on the train. Um, it took 84 people to serve those 12 people uh, dinner or lunch. Right? That's incredible. So you're, yeah, you're looking at roughly 96 to 100 people, depending on how you slice it up, um, to cert to, to like to have this experience, right? This was hundreds of man hours. This was a lot of research and development. This was legal work, making sure that we were, uh, you know, not violating MTA rules or um, making sure the food was safe and healthy and was right, going to be totally. served on this type of thing. Um, interacting with the New York Times and all the other press outlets, making sure the video was recorded, making sure all the content. Uh, it was in the right codex so that it could be edited as quickly as possible so that it, we could have this happen as well as the PR cycle. You know, and, and this was that thing where we were looking at the theater and that hundred people. And then we knew that that had to become millions of interactions with people, whether it be, you know, funny, uh, people thought my mustache was ridiculous or we were just a bunch of hipsters doing silly nonsense on the subway, right? Or people thought it was maybe it was very useful because it was like this really uh, interesting creative project that was very large and, and cumbersome, but it, it was eloquently executed. Can I use this to inspire my teams? You know, um, can I use this to learn from, you know, uh, was it beautiful? Is it interesting to see this meal happening like this? You know, so we were, we were telling these different stories through, you know, the press, you know, through the New York times and, and the written word through the blogs and things like that, through the photographs, through the videos that we were creating and editing. 
um, through the social media campaign that was nascent at the time, but was like starting to really become a valuable asset. Um, and that, that was where we really started saying like, these things can exist in both worlds as valuably, you know, like if you create this parallel media story, it will actually resonate with people in the same way as the experience that you're looking to design. And instead of just showing them something that they missed, you know, like, oh, there was this cool thing that happened on the subway and you weren't there. The media provides in and of itself an experience that you're excited about sharing or talking about or using as inspiration or whatever it is. Right. So, okay, that's in 2011. What, like, at what time did, at this point, had you quit your job? Like, what, what are you doing for money during all of this? You know, it really depends on what time the whole thing is. And uh, I have to say that, like, the hardest thing about being an entrepreneur is balancing your foundation and your play. And um, I was always in, you know, I would say up until about 2011, it was always a balance between me having a day job where I was making decent money and able to invest my time and my resources how I saw fit and this becoming a full-time project. And I would say that it never really feels like either one while it's happening, right? Um, because you're reinvesting so much of your time and energy into something that is your passion that you're trying to make into your foundation. Um, so I, I would say I, I stopped doing anything else right around 2010. Um, and, you know, it was most of this was happening, uh, you know, during the day and at night it would be things that would be splintering from this, whether it be entrepreneurially or from a consulting point of view, but it was always some iteration of this type of creativity, this type of entertainment or marketing from about 2010 till today. Okay, so now what were you thinking at that time in terms of how you were going to make money and like what was going to go down? Like, hey, did, I guess, did you have any sort of, uh, through conversations with other people um, that maybe were at creative agencies at the time or anything like that, did you have any like hint as to the fact that like, okay, if we do this lunch on the L train thing, then that's going to get us pressed. Then maybe people will reach out to us. Um, or, you know, like it's an interesting, like the amount yes. of the amount of man hours and difficulty of doing these things that you're talking about. It's, it's a lot to just do on like a whim for fun, you know, to, to like not have it turn into anything. So like, what were you thinking when you were doing all of this? Like, were you thinking it was going to turn into something? Well, I mean, it, the, the whole purpose was to make a thing, right? Um, the whole, the whole, you know, specific bit was to say like, my name is Michael and I entertain people and I can entertain people for your, your brand or your, uh, uh, organization or your government or your individual. Um, and I, I, I will both respect your resources, whether it be money, time, opportunity, whatever it is. I will also create something unique and interesting and I will do it theatrically. Um, so it's clear now that I'm really good at making experiences that you can touch with your hands. And I'd also like to showcase to you that I'm really good at telling the story through the media that's available, video, photo, social media, press, all that kind of stuff. So if you come to me and, and I say, you know, I can do this, I can showcase myself doing these things, because it's one of the trickiest things is, you know, in this ever evolving space, how do you demonstrate expertise when it's rapidly changing on a regular basis? And, you know, that was that process, you know, as a definition. And a lot of the, the, the kind of the people we collaborated with were functioning in a very similar way. They were cooks trying to figure out how to do something interesting. They were uh, videographers and photographers that knew this would be a fun moment to be a part of capturing and that they could add their voice to it either through the capture or the editing. 
Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's about trying to find that right synergy for demonstrating a group of people's inherent value and skills. Yeah, I love that. Man, it's just so cool that this was just this natural evolution of just having friends over for dinner, like, you know, many years ago. It's, it's really awesome. Yeah, I, I think that there, you know, there's many metaphors to be used in this space, but like the celebrity chef thing is, uh, is, is a clear thing because you, you, you take for granted that Mario Batali uh, started off, you know, making theater, right? He was an Italian chef. Um, serving up Italian food on a regular basis. And, you know, the basic job of him was to make sure that that performance was the same every single night and as, as breathtaking as possible with the tools he had. And then he started doing Molto Mario and Iron Chef. And then that, that was his media side. You know, he wrote some cookbooks, got them out there. Those, those became artifacts. And then eventually that triumvirate just started getting bigger and bigger. You know, then he had four restaurants. Then he had Italy. Then he was selling orange crocs. And he had a partnership with a knife company and a pasta making company. Now he's got his own pasta line. And they have, 15 casinos and, you know, and, and, and all based on this triumvirate of I'm an entertaining person and you're going to want to come and have my experiences. You're going to want to buy my products or my services and you're going to want to see media that we create because it, you know, it's funny, it's useful, it's beautiful, it's inspirational, whatever it is, you know, we're doing the things. And, you know, I feel like there was a lot of things that were happening in the underground in Brooklyn and San Francisco and Los Angeles and Chicago and, and, you know, tons of cities in between where food was being used as the catalyst for this right around then people were experimenting um they were traveling around the world experimenting and, and you know some people still are using this idea of of food as the the foundation for performance ex experiences or performance uh uh you know un unique interactions so to speak around the, the theatrical side of it yeah was there a specific moment that you really thought like i guess in between obviously uh, just having dinner with your friends, or, you know, inviting them over to make dinner at your house to that first like blockbuster thing you did, the lunch on the L train. Like, were there things or times in between where you were like, I am going to make this a business? Like, this isn't just going to be me doing fun, cool things with friends and, and play around and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that that started in 2008, where, uh, you know, at the time, you know, uh, I was working with a guy named Daniel Castaño, who was a restaurant chef, actually worked for Mario Batali, was incredibly capable of uh, opening restaurants. That was kind of his, that kind of was and is his specialty. He's great at front of house, back of house, imagination of menus, the service, all that stuff. And uh, we'd been cooking together for a while, having a great time of it. We've been seeing the fire of this underground dining scene starting. And he was, uh, he had an opportunity to go to Columbia and open a restaurant. So I was like, all right, you know, you go to Columbia, open this restaurant. I'm going to spend the rest of this year focusing on molecular gastronomy and scientific cooking, something I had been focusing on since 2002, right at the beginning of that whole train. Uh, I'm going to put a lot of energy into this and codify, you know, some skills here so that I can apply it to our cooking. When you come back after you open this restaurant, we're going to do some fun events. We're going to tell some stories. And then we're going to try to figure out how we can have fun by making these crazy and interesting projects for a living. And that, that was the goal of 2008. That was the entrepreneurial venture that was underpinned by our day jobs, right? You know, him cooking food, you know, me doing uh, entrepreneurial work and consulting and stuff like that. Um, so, I mean, that was kind of the whole goal of this from the get-go. I say it took three years to let go because um, you were, you know, for every one or two private events that we did that were, we made money we wanted to we were doing two or three things that were there to define a story or a message 
And that's just very expensive. And if you have a, a job that can finance that kind of habit, you kind of you kind of burn the candle at both, both ends, so to speak. Yeah, totally, man. That is uh, really hard. Was it after lunch on the L train that things really exploded for you? Was it sometime before that? And then once things exploded for you, was it basically like you got press and then companies started coming to you and now this is this realization of this this dream that you've had, this idea that you've had of like, wow, like people are people are coming to us and they want us to start making these experiences for them? I, I think that started in 2008. I think what happened in 2000, because, you know, we had a, uh, we had the New York Times article in 2008 um, really kind of allowed us to legitimately say that we could do these things for anybody, right? And that we could do them for individuals um, and we could do them for, for groups of people. We can do them as private parties, as ticketed events. And we were doing those things. Um, right. So I mean, think what, sorry, just to, uh, to double back on something I asked you had talked about earlier, but just very briefly, is that so in 08, you had an article written about you and these sorts of dinners that you were having and stuff like that. Yeah, a razor, a shiny knife. So Daniel and I and the food that we were doing at that time and my, you know, the general philosophy that I was kind of propelling us forward with in this experiential culinary space. And from 2008 to 2011, this was something we did you know, professionally probably with 40% of our time while we both had other jobs um, allowing us to then invest more than what we were making into the creative process and, and in kind of setting setting the stage for us. And in 2011, Daniel had a lot of restaurants that had opened up in Colombia, and he was basically full-time down there. And I basically translated this from a part-time agency into a full-time agency, um, started codifying the products and services that we offered from a bespoke point of view, and started creating stories that we wanted to tell to our, you know, the people that were following us that were kind of in the headspace that we'd created, you know, unique culinary events or unique theatrical experiences uh, around hospitality. Yeah, for sure. Tell us about the name of your company because I think it's like the greatest name ever. What is the like meaning behind that? So the, there's a there's a nice duality to it. Um, when I was uh, younger, I used to play in uh, rock and roll bands in college and right after college. And one of my friends' bands had a song, and the the you know I guess the coda of the two choruses. Uh, the first one was. Uh, the highlight of your life. And then the second one was a razor or shiny knife. And they were just kind of these standalone sentences after each of those courses in that song. And I always thought that the, you know, the, you know, the meter to those sentences were really fun. Um, and that was in like 2003 or something like that. And then I started cooking more and more. And I realized that, you know, cooking is a craft and I, I, I have waited tables professionally. Um, but I've never, at the time hadn't worked in a commercial kitchen like that. Uh, so I wanted to have the bare skills that were necessary for that craft. So one of the reasons why I was cooking every weekend was to practice my knife skills. You know, uh, I guess the, the, the base level thing of cooking is that you can make things smaller or make things sm <laughs> smaller in particular That's ways. That's a really good I mean, point. Turn this potato into a bunch of chips or French fries or into a thing that we can mash and rice or into gnocchi, right? And a lot of that happens uh, with either a chef's knife or a paring knife in a commercial kitchen. So I spent a majority of 2003 to 2010 just trying to get the level of skills that I would need to feel comfortable walking into a, a commercial restaurant. And you know, not just saying I intellectually understood how to plan a menu or manage a uh, uh, a logistics flow for the, the back of house or the front of house, but to say that like I could sit on the line and do the whole day's prep 
and then fire all the food that the grill station or the fish station or the saucier station, you know what I mean? Like go through the garmanger and, and then be the sewer. I, I wanted to, to not have to just rest on my laurels, even though that as a performer, as an, an entertainer, a lot of my projects were, you know, one-off experiences. I wanted to be able to feel comfortable with that base skill as well. Yeah. So a razor, a shiny knife was like a, a nice sentence uh, from a song. And it was also a reminder to me that like, I, 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 I couldn't take for granted that this skill was something I had to constantly be working at to make sure that I was, um, I, I wasn't uh, overstating my claims to be about, to be present. <laughs> Definitely. Totally. So I'm going to read a quick sentence from your uh, about section on your website. Um, it huh? says, our client list includes political leaders, Fortune 50 corporations, award-winning agencies, global celebrities, United Nations organizations, private individuals, and philanthropic organizations, blah, 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 blah. So how the hell are you getting these people as clients? You have no background in marketing. Like, How, how are you getting all these people? Like, You've done work with Nike, Pepsi. Chanel, like, like everyone, like how, how are you getting these people? So, I mean, I, I, I would say that uh, I am never a first agency in a lot of these conversations. You know, I, I, I shouldn't say that I'm, I'm very rarely the first agency to speak directly with these brands at the beginning of these conversations. Usually a larger uh, organization is there listening for a brand like Nike or for a brand like um, the Louis Vuitton my Hennessy group, you know, they're out there understanding what's happening in the zeitgeist and they're looking for things that they can then leverage for these brands that they spend, you know, thousands of man hours a year trying to better understand and to give voice to. Right. And, you know, hopefully they do that well and hopefully we do it in, a, in an interesting way. And I would say that the, the way that I have stood out over the last couple of years and the way that I can, I kind of uh, make my name is through these unique style experiences, through what uh, people call hero content or stunts. You know, the a dinner party on a subway is a really hard thing to do. It's inherently difficult right from the get-go. You know, I mean, you know it's going to be difficult, and then you watch it happen, and you're like, wow, that was way more difficult than I thought it was going to be because we made it that way. You know, we had soup or tableside. We had hot entrees, cold entrees, raw fish, frozen desserts. B because if you were looking for those things, you'd be like, wow, that's, that's, that's that much more interesting, right? And in doing that stuff, you know, these big agencies or these brands would be like, I'd like to have some of that. Can you give them a call? And whether it came directly from the brand or from the charity or from the initiative, uh, the communications firm, um, you know, or, or from, from, you know, from an agency or intermediary, you know, we were usually hired because we had a unique voice and they wanted to kind of use that to, to illustrate something. When these companies are coming to you, do they typically come with their own idea that they want you to sort of spice up a little bit? Or are they coming to you because you are you and they come to you with no idea and they're like, look, we just want you to do something freaking badass for us? I think it kind of goes across the spectrum for every creative agency. I think you know that, that, that balance is what everybody is trying to, to, to kind of figure out. How much do people come to you for your voice and how much are you trying to fill a need that they have? And I would say it varies from client to client and year to year. You know, some, some clients are very clear, you know, like I need a gala and I need 250 people in here and I need them to donate a half million dollars. So let's make something awesome. And, um, I don't want to know how much anything costs, but I want you to make sure that, uh, Steve knows everything and Sarah is going to be making <laughs> creative decisions. And I hope you have a good rest of your day. And I will see you in two weeks when you show me all the pretty drawings or, um, somebody who's just like, you know, this is the exact message I want to try to convey, but with lasers, 
can you do that? And it's just like, yeah, those are different sides of the thing. And they're, um, they're fun pieces to play. You know, rarely people come to us, but you know, this has kind of been the, the last three years, uh, has, has become a much, much larger space for us. And is kind of growing this year exponentially is this idea of us saying, we're going to create this thing and you're more than welcome to come and talk to us about, uh, reskinning this thing, applying it to your stuff, having it be a part of your idea or asking us to use this as a jumping off point for something specific for you, but using kind of our passions and our R and D to kind of lead the creative conversation. Um, I'd say a lot of this has been happening around technology. You know, we sit down and we do research about what augmented reality is, how it interacts with people, how people are using it right now, what people want to do with it in five to seven years, and then figure out fun and interesting experiences in that space. And then, you know, if an automobile company comes, maybe that's a right fit. Or if a consumer packaged goods or a sports drink company comes, you know, we try to figure out something that's just inherently awesome and then allow them to say, that's the kind of awesome that we want to see now. You know, let's make that into a thing and let's, let's bring it to this social event or let's put it in this location because this is valuable to us or these are the types of people we want to get excited about it. And, you know, it's a, it's a conversation from there. Yeah, for sure. So things like your, uh, your lunch on the subway, um, were not done for anyone that was done for yourself which is great i mean you like what better way to market yourself and your own abilities than to be doing amazing things that then people will want to talk about and want to hire you for when you have like crazy amazing ideas come into your head do you like nowadays do you typically just go ahead and do them and do them just for yourself and for your own company or do you typically kind of hold on to them and give those ideas to clients when clients come to you without their own idea. So I would say like that has been the last year of my life was getting myself into a place where I felt much more comfortable uh, with the, the ephemeralness of my ideas and getting them out into the public quickly as possible so that I could get critiques so that I could find the right partnerships or collaborators to start making the things become a reality more quickly. I found that, um, you know, I, I talk about making mistakes a lot. And I, I, I spent the last maybe from 2011 to 2015 being very conservative and like keeping a lot of things close to my chest. And I think the last year I've been really ramping up the idea of broadcasting ideas on a regular basis that we've been working on to start getting opinions or trying to figure out how to make them more and more, um, you know, rich in that kind of entertaining universe that we spoke about earlier. You know, if, if it's a story, how do we find partners to make it into a piece of theater and an artifact and vice versa? Um, I think the, the projects that we're doing right now with drones are a, a perfect example of this. Um, you know, for the last two years, I have personally been researching the advanced robotics and unmanned vehicle space because I feel like it's a huge chunk of the future of what we're going to be dealing with. And it, like augmented reality and virtual reality, are buzzwords that marketing agencies and digital agencies and brands like to see around things you know people get excited by augmented reality or robotics or drones and they want to have them at their events or in their media or in their their stunt or whatever it is right so we spent a lot of energy trying to figure out what could be done with drones now and what could be done with unmanned vehicles now um, instead of just waiting for them to deliver us packages in the future um, and we're in the process right now of kind of launching those as products that you could interact with or buy for your party or have for your, your event. Um, and it's, 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 it's a lot of fun to, to get out of the, the wait for somebody to ask mentality and just start making things to see if people want to buy it or, or want to interact with it. Totally. 
And it's so it's so awesome the way that your mind works and the things that you think up, because I think, you know, it is a company or people will be thinking about ways to use those things. There's sort of certain standard things that would pop into a lot of people's heads like they would think, oh, drones, like, OK, we could um, take some cool photos of the party with that. We'll just take video the whole time. It'll just be flying around and there will just be video being done. And it's like, OK, well, that's a pretty normal idea. But doing something like, oh, your your drone is going to make your cocktail and like shake your cocktail up in the air and things like that. Like that's such a huge shift. And like that's what makes the New York Times write about you. And that's that's what makes the entire event worthwhile. Like if the New York Times isn't writing about you, then it's almost like who who cares? Then what did I hire you for? Then what why spend all this money? But in some ways, yeah, your ideas are just so um, like viral for for lack of a better term. Well, I really appreciate that. I mean, that's, you know, that's a huge compliment in, the, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a world where you're trying to capture people's attention and they have many things to distract them, right? And I feel like, you know, saying I have a drone photo booth is, is a very simple idea. You know, drone selfie videos are a thing. They're awesome. You know, I don't want to have to be able to know how to fly a, a drone to have that happen or remember to bring a drone to my friend's wedding or to have a drone at this concert. I, I want there just to be a drone photo booth where I could walk up and there'd be a drone there and I hit the button and the drone, you know, semi-autonomously flies away, makes a beautiful video and like just pops me out an MP4 or whatever it is. And it sends it to my email account so I can put it on the Instagrams. And like that to me is perfectly on trend with other pieces of technology that are currently kind of floating around the, the experiential world. You know, people want to have unique photo booth experiences because it's a great artifact for a party. It's a great artifact for a temporary, uh, a temporary or ephemeral moment. You know, you and I were together here. Let's take a photo. So why not just do it with a drone? And, you know, the project you're talking about, the cocktails with drones was just taking that same software and giving you the option to choose its flight pattern. You know, do you want it to shake your drink or do you want it to stir your drink? (laughs) <laughs> and everything else was the same. You know, you ordered the drink from a bartender. They put the, the stuff into a shaker. They gave the shaker to the drone operator. You know, she put it into the drone. And then the drone just goes up and goes back down. And except for the last 10 feet, it either does like a twirl or it shakes itself up and down as it comes down to the, the, the landing pad. And it's trivial and it's silly, um, but it's the right kind of trivial and the right kind of silly that makes you realize that um, it's doing it for you and that you get to own a piece of that moment when it gets done, both to drink there and talk about and look at you get to take videos of it happening and then it's going to give you your you know its perspective of your experience um which is kind of fun and it's novel and it's again it's not what drones normally do drones normally spy on us or they they shoot at people or they um you know they're going to deliver us packages or something and i thought that was whimsical enough to get people to pay attention totally that's the way you say it is so right which is a it's whimsical enough you know and it's like just silly enough and it's just crazy and it's like it just hits this this really good sweet spot and i feel like like so many of your things are that way um and, and where they're difficult and really difficult a difficult to think of but difficult to do but it's also doable like this this thing i'm looking at on your website right now the 125th birthday of pizza you order pizza from every pizzeria in new york yeah like I, that's insane. Like that's that's like so insane that you would be able to do something like that, and would even think to do something like that. It's it's great. Well, and, and that that project was specifically the kind of thing that we we pride ourselves on. Like we we got a call that that was a Wednesday, right? So the Wednesday before we got a call from a guy named Ronan who was talking to another guy named Matt, and they were like, "Next week is the 125th anniversary of Pizza Margarita, and we'd like to." 
order a pizzeria from every pizzeria in Manhattan? Is that possible? And, you know, first and foremost, being the person that they would call to ask if something was possible that sounded ridiculous is an awesome place to be in, right? So then I was like, yeah, it's totally possible. You know, I'm going to need probably 48 hours to plan it out and like, you know, X amount of money. But if you can get that together, I think we could totally do it. And they're like, great. You know, we can take care of these things and we would want you to do your portion. Um, let us go try to get these resources together to make it happen. And then that Friday afternoon, I got a call that said somebody from a, you know, an agency or a brand wanted to say yes to it, but they were on an airplane. Could we talk to them when they landed in Los Angeles? And I said, sure. And, uh, that call happened at like 10 o'clock at night. They were like, love the idea. I think we can totally do it. Feels comfortable. We'll give you the resources. And we hung up the phone with a, basically like a handshake knowing the contracts were going to happen on Monday morning for, again, an execution that had to happen on Wednesday. Um, and, you know, in, a, in, I guess, an overly personal situation, literally as I hung up that call about to go to sleep, uh, I was struck with a kidney stone. And, uh, you know, my partner and I, Catherine, spent the rest of the weekend basically in the hospital um, and never was able to call uh, any of the people on my team or activate the production side of the whole thing to get ready for Monday. So on Sunday afternoon, uh, when I finally was you know, semi-human again, we basically had to start sending out all the feelers and get the people together so that by Monday night, we would all be in the same room with the same piece of strategy ready to execute basically a, a nonstop production from that moment until the party started on Wednesday afternoon. It's so crazy. So in that amount of time, you had to find a space for like, well, Actually, you know, why don't you tell me? Tell me about all the things that you needed to do in a matter of three days. So we, we had a space uh, uh, that was in Williamsburg where we could host the event. We had to figure out uh, the best way of marking every pizzeria in Manhattan. So there's caveats, obviously, because you know we, we're not we're not silly people. Wait, hang on, um, sorry, really quickly. How did you just have a space? Was that you mean you guys like already just happened to own a space in New York, or or uh, well, one of like the somebody partners, knew? R- okay. Ronan, had, like one of the guys that called me said, "I have this great space. We want to throw this party." Matt has this idea to throw this party. Can you help us? And I was like, yeah, sure. So then it was my job to then imagine, you know, that simple idea of ordering a pizza from every pizzeria in Manhattan and turning that into uh, a piece of theater, you know, an actual event and experience, put rules around it, you know, and the rules that we came up with were that we were going to go to each franchise. So not every Domino's, but one Domino's, one Pizza Hut, one raise, one original raise, one original famous raise. You know, these are things that have 20, 30 locations. So it seems silly to get a pizza from every one of them. Um, it also was um, too much, would, would have created too much food and not enough time to consume all of it, which would have created an enormous amount of waste, right? So the end number turned out to be 488 different franchises. That's and we did, nuts, dude. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and we, we did that by looking... There was a couple guys, there was this one gentleman and, you know, uh, you're gonna have to forgive me. We're going to have to fact check this later on. I, I believe it's slice expander or something like that. Or, um, but he basically went to every pizza joint in New York city and made a Google map. And we were able to use that as part of our, uh, kind of data scrape. Plus, uh, we, we got data from, uh, Google and Yelp through their public availability systems. And we were able to make this comprehensive database and then have, teams of people call and double check the validity of each of the locations and whether they were opened or not. You know, that was all happening Monday night into Tuesday morning or through Tuesday, right? As we were basically building our logistics uh, plans and we then had to figure out how we were going to collect everything and how many people it would take to collect uh, the numbers of pizzas that we needed. So we, we looked at how um, zip codes, how the city was broken down into zip codes. And then we looked at uh, UPS, uh, 
you know, mapping systems for package delivery because UPS has a very efficient algorithm for, for delivering things around the city. Right. Um, so we tried to figure out the most, uh, the simplest collection routes up and down avenues th- through as many zip codes as possible so that there would basically be like vans that would collect, you know, hundreds of pizzas an hour and deliver them to the one location where there would be 25 to 40 people spread out across the city each regionally collecting pizzas to this one point so they had about an hour to collect 20 pizzas each roughly and then get it to a waypoint where a van would then come and then consolidate you know those pizzas into hundreds of pizza stacks uh in warmers and things like that man logistics like really is your art that these are all the things that you would think of right i mean and that's that's why you can say yes to stuff like that and then know that you can have an awesome party on the back end where you can have a good dj some funny and silly art um, food, uh, drinks, uh, you know, something to do while you're hanging out there talking to your friends, a picture to take. Um, you know, we built this huge sculpture because again, right, you know, you want people to leave the biggest pizza party in New York city that night and have something to show to their friends to be like, yo, last night I went to the largest pizza party in the city and this is what it looked like. And they'd be like, yeah, that's pretty cool. I wish I was there. And again, that makes it live on for those people. It gives them an artifact, something that they could take home and it makes that 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 very um, resource intensive moment that we created, right? You know, something we put a lot of energy into, makes it live on for a little longer. How? What about paying for the pizzas? Like, did the company get you like corporate credit yeah, cards really cash. quickly, or no, no, cash? We use cash. Okay. Yeah, and that, that was uh, you know one of our producers at the time had to dole out you know roughly twenty thousand dollars to order five hundred pizzas, <laughs> um, and basically gave it to you know the thirty five. Uh, people that were there basically as interns or as a day of staff, uh, you know, in, you know, 20 pizza chunks so they could go out and buy those pizzas. And he was, you know, literally giving people out envelopes of cash for for the better part of the morning of the event until everybody got to their waypoints. And, uh, you know, that, that was, again, it's one of these things where the L train took 84 people to serve that meal because there were certain things like you can't put a trade jack down on the subway or the subway platform because it could encumber somebody's movement. So you had to have people holding the trays, right? So it's like, well, we just got to add more humans here and we'll, we will eventually reach a point where we have enough humans to do the thing the way that we want it to do. Um, and then we can look to remove some if necessary or if possible, but we know we can at least do this in a, in a very analog and thoughtful way um, because we're really good at making sure that all the boxes are checked. When you're doing events like this, are you always kind of hiring friends or friends of friends and things like that? Or are you also just hiring people that have the skill set for the job that you're finding on Craigslist or you're finding wherever else? Um, it's not like a Craigslist thing as much as is like a referrals network. Uh, you know, since my passion is making things with people, I make lots of different things with people. Um, and with lots of, lots of people reach out to make, to me to make different types of things. So I, I you know, I'm, I'm 38. I've spent the last 16 or 18 years, you know, making random things with people passionately. And that network is part of who I am. You know, that is when I walk into a room and I'm talking to somebody about a creative project, it is part of what I'm thinking about is like, oh, this would be a perfect project for, you know, for, for Sarah, if I could collaborate with her to solve this problem, that would be awesome. Or like, you know, William and I, or Michael and I, or, you know, like, however you want to strike through these things. Like I'm meeting with a guy named uh, Sanjay on on Friday, you know, it's just like knowing his skills and knowing his passion when I walk into a room with a client allows me to then imagine doing that thing with him or making that product with somebody else or making that experience with somebody else and knowing that 
we're both doing things that we're really kind of apt to be doing and really excited about doing and are creatively uh, passionate about and all those things. So it's going to be better inherently because we're not just cycling through something. We're actually using a larger majority of our talent or our voice. Right. And, and it keeps you feeling it, more confident when you're in these meetings with these companies, like knowing that you have, you, you most likely have an expert in whatever type of thing they want to do. Yep. And if I don't, I, I, I'm at a point in my career now where I either know how to learn about an industry well enough to ask for good advice. Um, because like a lot of what I do is either, you know, you know, as a technological, you know, an innovation person, right? A lot of this stuff has never been done before. So you have to then take people at their word that the things can be done. And it takes a while to figure out how to ask the right questions to learn whether or not people are capable of doing the things they say. And, you know, that's part of being a producer. It's part of being a creative person as well, knowing uh, what your resources are, what colors you can paint with. And I say, I, 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 you know, my general philosophy for, you know, marketing strategy is, you know, are we marketing, which is valuable in certain times, or are we entertaining, which is valuable uh, in other times, right? And I, I try to lean towards the entertainment, but, but we do both, you know, right? And then after that, what's the story we're making? What's the theater we're making? What's the artifact that we're making, right? At that point, we have a project that, that's going somewhere. We have a strategy that we're creating, uh, you know, a methodology we're talking about. We're building a team. We're trying to do a thing. After that thing has been done or after it's reached an MVP, the next question I try to ask myself, um, what, can we, what can we repeat from this project? You know, can we, can we just do this whole thing over again and it costs twice as much? Um, can we do the whole thing over again and it costs half as much, right? Uh, what can we recycle from this project that we just did, right? So can we take pieces of this thing and, re- and re- redo them, right? So both of that is R&D expenses that now get to have a second life or pieces of ephemeral moments that get to live on over and over again. And then the third question I ask is, you know, what can we learn from this project and then apply to a new thing, right? So uh, that to me is very uh, valuable as an agency and as a creative person is having that be a part of my life on a regular basis. This idea that we're going to try things and try to repeat them, try to repeat parts of them, but also just try to generally learn from these experiences and then reapply that to something, to the next problem. And, uh, you know, I'm 38. I still have to learn. I still have to be inspired by people. Um, the guys that work with me that are in their 20s are the people that work with me in their 20s and, and early 30s. I want them to make mistakes and to have the ability to be inspired or to learn about stuff that they don't know about so they can start to feel more and more comfortable in this space. And sometimes it's working on somebody else's problem that does that because if you're only making your own problems to solve, you might get a little too comfortable. Yeah, for sure, man. Absolutely. Do you have other, you just mentioned the people in their uh, 20s, early 30s. Do you have other full-time employees or are you and your partner the only like truly full-time employees and then other people you hire on a case-by-case basis? So I I don't have any partners at the moment. Um, Over the course of the years, I've worked with really great people. Daniel, a gentleman named Kevin. Um, But right now, a razor shiny knife is is my kind of voice towards the outside world. Um, We're making things with lots of different people. There's only three or four of us that are working right now uh, in the core team. And there's probably about 15 to 30 vendors that we work with on a regular basis. Because again, everything that we do is so project oriented. Um, It's about building teams for that project. And whether that project is a 100 course meal or whether that project is um, a drone photo booth you know they're not usually going to be the same types of experts they're not going to be the same types of producers or media uh, design people or filming crews to capture those moments um, photographers etc 
Um, so each time we iterate one of these projects, we're basically building a team around it. And then depending on that thing I just mentioned, depending on if it can repeat recycle, depends on whether or not that team becomes much more full time and much more focused on that iteration, or if it gets shuffled around again, you know, right now it's, uh, it is a very powerful world to be an independent creative, to be a freelancer, to be able to be making things for other people. Um, it's great to be in house somewhere and to know that you have that foundation, um, but there's a lot of opportunities in both and there's a lot of people that are segueing constantly back and forth. And, you know, I, I like to create an environment where the, the people I collaborate with try to feed each other as much, uh, energy and resources as possible, uh, advice, mentorship, um, and, and vice versa, you know, how far out do you have, uh, things scheduled? Like, I guess how much security is there with what you're doing? There, there's so many like entrepreneurship consultant type of jobs it seems so scary to me because it's like you don't really know where your next paycheck is going to come from and if things were to take a shit all of a sudden like it's uh it's scary you know so like i guess how much money do you have to charge for events and like how many events are you doing per year um because it's like you know you don't know when the next one's coming so i I have to charge you like x amount of dollars to like get me through to my next project yeah, I mean, that's not really the right way to kind of imagine this. I, I, I would say that the <clears throat> generally entrepreneurship is a, is, a, is a risky endeavor and it's, uh, it's scary. It's part of, <clears throat> part of being a good entrepreneur is having the temperament to, to, be risk, uh, to be risky, but be able to be calm about being risky and, and to invest your time and energy into things that you're not 100% positive are going to pay off. And, uh, you know, marketing um, is one of those things that is something that takes a long time to close, um, takes a long time to kind of understand what the brand is doing and what they're saying. And then, you know, that process of turning it into a project also takes a while. Sometimes something is six weeks, sometimes it's 12, sometimes it's 18. So the cycle time is very long. So, um, I would say there's never a point where you ever feel super duper comfortable. Um, I would say, that right now, part of why I am doing this very aggressive outward conversation uh, about the projects that we're working on and kind of iterating them in a creative space is to really productize our creativity and to give people multiple different ways to, to interact with us and to, to kind of give us resources or hear about our ideas or understand how we could affect their team or their company or their charity or their government um, or their creative process or, the, you know, the, use their skills for something. Um, so I don't know. It's 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 a question that I guess every entrepreneur has to work through, and it's really something that it, that is it is uh, it's a constant battle. Yeah. So how many projects might you work on over the course of a year? Like how many projects did you work on last year, the year before? You know, it's it's really it really varies um, because the skies and scope they go from like you know speaking engagements um, where it's me speaking for an hour, forty five minutes, uh, to um, kind of larger type theatrical engagements like that that are still short in time but have a lot more production to them through you know thousand person dinner parties to experiences that have you know robots and social you know virtual reality augmented reality 3d printing moving 40 people to another city on another continent media production where you're you're in the hundreds of thousands if not millions uh budget so it's 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 kind of it's hard to speak about but it, it it's anywhere between 15 and 25 things uh, a year. Um, and some of them can be gigantic and take up an enormous amount of time. And a lot of them can be teeny and tiny and be concentrated into a small little area of, or window. Yeah, man, that's gotta be really cool. And uh, 
sort of intimidating at the same time when you get entrusted with a really large budget to do something. Yeah, I mean, again, like the the thing that I, I go back to is best practices, right? So, um, any if you can do something and then you can also show your homework while you do it or show your work, basically, uh, then everybody has every reason to trust you. And being good at logistics allows me to sh- to show my work in a way that allows people to understand that when I say <clears throat> I'm going to make uh, a water tower sized cocktail and it's going to serve 20,000 drinks a day and it's going to have a really elegant draft system for those cocktails so they're <laughs> really tasty. You're going to say, like, I believe you because I guarantee there's a spreadsheet somewhere on your server that explains how many PSI per linear foot, per tubing, per pressure, per blo- you know, and, and you, ha- you would have thought about this or you, you wouldn't say it out loud to me because you want to be taken seriously. And I want to take this creativity seriously because I want to eventually make it into a reality and have people experience it. That's a really good point, man. That's why you're good at doing this. And, uh, and a lot of other people aren't. That's, that's awesome. And, and again, like, I, I appreciate you pointing out how tough, um, uh, how tough it is to, to kind of just do business development in a world where you're an individual working with large agencies that have hundreds and hundreds of people or brands that have, you know, tons of marketing people, um, and capturing their attention and getting them through the process of interacting and getting contracts written. You know, it's not for the faint of heart. It requires a lot of different expertise. Um, and it, and it, and it's, it's, it's both a blessing and a curse when you work with really big companies because they expect a lot and they expect a lot of things that you might not think are necessary. You know, like I do a lot of talking about working with large brands because, um, you know, especially if you're a super creative person, you're going to get jarred when everybody uses PowerPoint. You know, you're going to think that key, Keynote is really cool. It's beautiful. It's elegant, blah, blah, blah. I have a Mac. I'm going to use Keynote and be like, well, we only do PowerPoint here. And we all work on Microsoft because there's 15,000 computers that this company owns. And that's a real thing. And you have to make sure you can be as creative in that environment as you would be in your comfortable space or you can't play in that, that, that league, so to speak. Yeah, totally. It seems like you really embrace almost like an old school mindset or skill set or, or something like that. It's funny, like everyone I feel like um, our age or, or younger wants their jobs to be more and more creative. And I, I feel like you're kind of bucking against that a little bit. And like, again, how, how you say that um, logistics is your art and spreadsheets are is is the art that you make and things like that it's like it, it you realize that that's what then allows you to operate in this creative world and do these amazingly creative things is the fact that you are really rooted in just like actual business acumen and uh and logistics yeah i, I mean I, one of the projects that we're currently working on is a dinner party served by drones and it in and of itself is a, is a ridiculously difficult idea having drones bring food places right and then when you start putting in all of the requirements you know uh the kitchen is going to be on the roof of one building and the dining room is going to be on the roof of the other right saying buildings immediately puts you in a municipality where buildings exist which means you have to deal with a local government since you're working in a city you have to worry about all the things that cities bring along with them people walking on the streets interacting with the fire department interacting with the police department making sure you have the right permits then you also have to make sure the technology works. Then you also have to make sure the technology works in a way that's actually enjoyable and feels comfortable for the people. So that means not having the drones deliver the food to the table, but having it do something close by. And then all of a sudden you're in this place where you're using cutting edge technology that's never been done before. How do you practice that type of stuff? Where do you do your practicing? How many hours is it going to take for your team to feel comfortable saying to the FAA that they can do this repeatedly without any you know, nervousness? How is your insurance agent going to think about these things? 
it's always great to be as creative as possible, but if you want to have your things become real, they have to function inside society and they have to meet society's rules. And that means having best practices and knowing how to play nicely with all those organizations that will make this thing not only just safe, but also wildly successful and something other people will want to have happen as well. And to me, um, having that wild imagination, but knowing how to then parse that and try to turn it into something that's possible is tantamount to, to, to what I've been working on for the last, you know, is, is that idea of making a, uh, a creative and wildly outrageous idea into something that is realistically possible has been a majority of the focus of my work uh, as a producer, as a creative person, um, as a collaborator, listening to other people who do stuff and learning from them, as a consultant trying to solve other pe people's problems. Um, and that's hopefully what I'll get to do, uh, you know, as I get older and I, uh, I, I get better at this stuff. I love it, man. It's a great way to think about everything. Um, all right, Michael, let's go ahead and wind this thing down. So first of all, I'd love to know, what do you think that you would be doing if you weren't doing this? I always wanted to uh, do special effects and like uh, computer animation, but I never had the patience of sitting in front of computers um, and learning how to do the actual computer drawing. Um, I tried a bunch. It just didn't really work with my kind of execution. It's just such a, a specific skill in art. I kind of hit a, uh, a limit when it comes to basic two-dimensional creativity, um, you know, with my hand on a mouse, so to speak. Uh, so hopefully I, maybe I would have been able to go somewhere inside that world because I find it's really interesting being able to manipulate media and to create uh, create ideas where there is nothing that is real that's tangible that feels real and feels tangible. Yeah, for sure. So something that almost like shares the philosophy of what you're doing but not the skill set. Yeah, again, like if I've been working on taking ideas and turning them into things that you can touch, I think that there is a great uh, value and skill for the person that could help realize the imagination between those two spaces. And maybe I would just try to move up that chain a little bit and focus on on how to get ideas out of people's heads into drawings that then can be bought or sold. Yeah, for sure. Um, and whether that, whether that be TV shows or you know action movies or cartoons or you know you know proposals or whatever it is, I, I kind of you know if it's not theatrical, maybe it would be more in that storytelling space. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's finish up with some advice. So I feel like what you do is so unique and amazing, and something that I almost get frustrated by is when I listen to like motivational or inspirational people speak and they almost say that like you you need to not try to make something happen in order to make it happen. And then I look at your story, it's like the whole evolution of a razor shiny knife started without you even really thinking about a razor shiny knife. All you were thinking about was, hey, I just want to have nice dinners with my friends. And that's what landed you with this having this amazing life is like not necessarily really focusing on it so hard. Uh do you think there's anything to that? And I guess what advice would you give people that wanted to create a dream job like yours that, that is something that doesn't even really exist yet, that they know they have these skill sets, they know they have these ideas, and they just want to bring it all together and, and work for themselves? I mean, my big thing is, is practice making stuff. And, um, you know, there, there's a lot of great examples of people getting really good through repetition or through, um, you know, demonstrative work. Right. So, uh, I can't find this guy. We can fact check it, but there was a gentleman in, I believe England that did a logo every day for a year and he went through all of the brands. Right. And he was a graphic artist and his whole idea was he wanted to try all these brands on and see what they looked like through his, his pen or his, his styling. Right. And after a year he had an incredible portfolio and he worked with every, he literally worked with every brand in the world he'd want to work with not because they asked him to, but because he asked himself to. 
Um, you know, I have a photographer friend named Noah Kalina who took a picture of himself every day since like 2002 or something. And, you know, again, he's a great photographer and that's probably not what got him to be a great photographer, but it started him off thinking about photography every single day and how he was going to improve his craft. Um, you know, I'm about to start this project where I start launching companies or creative projects on a regular basis because, uh, I want to set a time limit for me. I want to say, Hey, you have all these ideas, you know, you have a you have you have to get them done. You have to make them into something people can say yes or no to, or give you a reason why. And uh, if you don't do this, you're going to stop being as good at this as you as you think you are. And you need to challenge yourself. And by putting that limitation or putting a, a box around myself, I'm hoping I'm hoping to make some mistakes, to learn some things, to get inspired, um, and to maybe kind of exchange, you know, things that I say in practice with things, uh, things that I say and things that I practice more often, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I think that's very important, you know, do the thing you want to be good at as often as possible, find a mentor that can help you through the process of learning about it. Um, and then don't be afraid to make as, as many mistakes as possible while learning from them. Because if you don't make mistakes, you're probably not learning. And if you make mistakes, if you don't learn from them, then they're just going to constantly be compounding and expense. Um, and as you get older, you're expensive. Your, you know, your mistakes become more and more expensive. So, <laughs> no doubt, man, dude, that is a lot of great advice, uh, Michael. Thank you so much for coming on the show, man. You're such an interesting guy. Everything you do is so interesting and awesome. Uh, people want to check you out. Website is a razor, a shiny knife. Um, we really appreciate you coming on the show, man. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your your kind words. I really appreciate being here, and I really pre- appreciate the conversations you're having. I, I think that the podcast has given me. The ability to tap into a bunch of kind of uh, professions and specialties that I wouldn't have otherwise been in, uh, inclined to talk to. So I thank you also for the inspiration. Absolutely, man. Appreciate it. Hope you have a great day. Hey, everyone. It's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you did, I would appreciate it so much if you considered leaving a review for the show on iTunes. I swear it'll only take like two minutes. Um, just search for the show on iTunes, click on it, click on ratings and reviews. You can leave a quick review um, or just uh, keep listening to the show. I appreciate that as well. Or tell a friend about the show or something. And if you have any ideas for the show, if you have a particular job or hobby that you would like to hear interviewed on the show, if you yourself think that you do something interview worthy and you would like to tell the world about what this job or hobby is that you have, head on over to halfhourintern.com. There's a link right there at the top that says submit your ideas and you could submit your ideas for the show be them uh, somebody else that you would like me to interview a particular field that you would like to hear about or even if it is you yourself that would like to come on the show thanks so much for listening you guys